And, uh, you know, this morning we're going to spend some time together. We're going to be in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21. And now that's a decent chunk of scripture. Uh, and let me alleviate your worries. We are not going to go line by line, word by word here for the next two hours. Instead, we're going to treat this a little bit more like the time that I hope you get to have in the next couple of days. Imagine you're at the beach. Now, if you're at the beach and you're beholding an ocean view, we're not going to lean in and look at each individual piece of sand. Instead, you're going you're gonna to lean back, see the whole thing, see the broad brushstrokes of beauty before you. And that's what we're going to do in First John 4 today. So as I read these words from God to us, sit back, enjoy the view, and listen to God speaking to us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, no one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected, in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask that you would bring your word to your people through your servant this morning. Through your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? God, build us up where we need it. Convict us and correct us where we need it. God, would you transform us through the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit so that we would not leave this room the same, but we would, having seen and tasted the goodness of your love, be moved to love others in the same way. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So who here knows what an NFT is? Anybody? Okay, got a couple people. Excellent. So last year, as I was listening to the radio, I heard this story about a man who had created some digital artwork online back in 2016, and he became a millionaire, a multimillionaire by selling these pictures that he had made with a computer online. And when I heard this story, I did not understand what an NFT was was, and still today, I don't think I totally get them. Essentially, NFT stands for non-fungible token. And an NFT is a one-of-a-kind 
digital asset. It's a picture or a clip or a piece of music that cannot be duplicated. And, and the world of NFTs is wild because people spend hundreds of dollars and thousands of dollars and even hundreds of thousands of dollars for pixels on a screen. Unlike a leather sofa or a fancy dinner or a valuable painting, an NFT cannot be touched. It cannot be tasted. And if we're thinking about it, it can't even actually be seen in a non-virtual way. And for me, NFTs leave me feeling a little bit discombobulated and, and wondering this question that I had when I was a teenager that first saw The Matrix, wondering, is this real? Now, I feel confident about my answer as to whether or not I'm in the matrix and if this is reality around me. I feel less confident about whether or not NFTs are actually real things. But I think we sometimes find ourselves asking this question about faith. Is this real? Is it genuine? Is it true? As we walk in the way of Jesus, we will go through seasons, sometimes short, sometimes long of wondering even fearing whether or not our relationship with God is real. We won't feel the things we used to feel. We'll doubt the things we used to be sure of. And we'll see these gaps in between what we say is true and what we actually do. And we'll wonder, how do I know if my faith is real? Some of us today, you're here and you're investigating Christianity. You're looking at Jesus from the outside right now. And you're asking the question, how do I know if this faith that these people here are singing about and talking about and responding to in their lives, how do I know if this is real? Our passage this morning, it comes in the middle of this extended argument from John in which he is answering these questions. Leading up to chapter 4, John has been describing the marks of real faith in Jesus. Because his original readers were wondering how to know what real faith in Jesus was as they sorted through their own confusion and conflict in their time. And some of the marks that John provides in this book, 1 John, about real Christianity, they're marks of belief. They're foundational truths about who God is and what God has done that must be believed by Christians. But in this section, John shows us a mark of action, a foundational way of being in the world that must be lived out by Christians for faith to be real. And it's important for us to remember that Christianity is not mere belief or mere action. Christian faith is meant to be an integrated whole of what we know, what we love, and what we do. And in this passage, John is particularly focused on doing, on action, as an evidence of real faith in Jesus. And so what does John point to in these verses we just read as evidence of real, genuine, actual faith? Loving one another. Loving one another. And I think that that can sound like maybe too simple of an answer at first. Maybe insufficient or even trite, a cliche, but John means more than we might expect when he says that loving one another is a mark of real faith. As we behold this passage together, this is the big idea that we're going to unpack. Loving one another realizes God's love. If you're taking notes, I'd begin there. Loving one another realizes God's 
love. And I'm pulling this idea specifically from verse 12 and kind of its surrounding context. And verse 12 says this, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. His love is perfected in us. That's an interesting word that John uses here to say that God's love needs to be perfected in us. What does that mean? Now, he's not saying that God's love is imperfect, that it needs to be corrected, that it needs to be made right or improved. Instead, John is referring here to an ongoing process of completing, maturing, actualizing something. It's kind of like what happens when a seed is planted in the dirt. It's, it's covered over with the ground. And the plant is really there in its seed form. But the reality of that plant is not yet fully known, experienced, or enjoyed until that seed grows into a tree that provides shade and fruit for others to enjoy. Now, if you belong to God this morning, if you're a Christian who walks in the way of Jesus, then God's love has been planted in you. But that love must be nurtured. It must be brought to fuller fruition. And in this passage, John is telling us that God's love is not yet perfected in us. On this side of heaven, on this side of Jesus's return, there's growth to be done in us. That God's love needs to be realized, matured, improved. And that means that there's cultivating work to be done for God's love to grow up in us. So John told his first readers then, and he tells us now that the action of loving one another, it's a crucial mark of real Christian faith because loving one another does something incredible in us and in our community as his love takes deeper root in our hearts, providing shade and sustenance for those around us. Simply put, loving one another realizes God's love. So we're going to unpack this big idea in two parts. First, I'm going to see what this passage has to tell us about the character of God's love for us. And then second, we'll explore how us choosing to love one another develops and matures God's love in us. So let's take the first part first. What does this passage teach us about God's love? Not too long ago, uh, I was making breakfast for my family. It was waffles and bacon. And waffles, uh, that's like my son Abraham's favorite thing that I can make. And Abraham looked up at me and asked this question. He said, dad, why are you making me waffles for breakfast? And I knew I had a parenting opportunity here. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. When the kid just serves you up a question, you're like, oh, I can teach you something here. I can impart some wisdom to you, my child. And so I looked at my son right in the eyes. I said, Abraham, I made you waffles because I love you. I'm getting right to the heart of it. Abraham looks me right back in the eye and says, Dad, sometimes I love you. (laughs) He goes on to say, sometimes I don't love you. When I'm sad, I say to you, I don't love you. When I'm happy, I say to you, I love you. Now, it's funny to hear your three-year-old describe their love as an on-off switch, toggled by circumstance and emotion, but that is not the kind of love that we want from God. We want a love that is more stable, more substantial, less influenced by waffles. That's the kind of love that we want from God. In verses 9 through 10, John describes God's love. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If we want to know what God's love is like, John tells us that the best place to look is in the gospel story, the good news about what God has done to save us. The first thing that we see here is that God's love is intentional. His love is intentional. God made his love manifest among us. That means that God revealed his love. God doesn't keep his love a secret. He doesn't hold back his affections. Instead, God puts his love on display for everyone to see. He's not ashamed of it. He's not embarrassed about it. He shows off his love, particularly in the glory and the wonder and the mystery of Jesus That Jesus showed God's love in a tangible way by taking on human flesh, becoming incarnate in order to make God's love known to us and experienced by us. See, God is not unclear about his intentions with us. He boldly and extravagantly demonstrated his love for us by sending his own son to save us. God's love is intentional. Second, we see that God's love brings life. God's love is not a bland sentiment or just a nice thought. John tells us that Jesus was sent into the world so that we might live through him. God's love it is powerful. It's God's love that heals broken people, that rescues foolish wanderers, that revives dead hearts, that forgives horrible sin, and that will make everything new. And when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to bring our hearts to life, to dwell with us, within us, and to empower us to walk in the way of Jesus. And if you've been around the church for a while, particularly if you grew up in a family that followed Jesus, I think sometimes we get used to the idea that God loves us. I mean, the phrase, God loves you or God loves me, that's the kind of thing that we put on coffee cups. It's the kind of thing we print on shirts. It's the kind of thing that we make artwork about. It's the kind of thing that we say and that we sing all the time. And that's good. We should keep God's love in front of us. But I think sometimes we get too familiar with God's love that we forget what it truly is. As many of you know, it is a lifeline in the darkest season of life. When you feel completely lost, when you don't know what to do, when you don't know what's next, when you're not sure why what has happened has happened, God's love for you is the lifeline. It's the thing that gets you through. It's the thing that brings you to the other side. It's the thing that sustains you and helps you and empowers you. God's love gives life. The third thing we see is that God's love initiates. Look at verse 10. It says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us. See, God's love for us is not a response to anything that we have done, said, or asked for. God chose to love us first. God is the one who took the first step to pursue and rescue and romance us. We don't have to go chasing after God We don't have to convince him to accept us. God has sought us out first. He's chased after us. He set his affection upon us. And if you love God this morning, your love for him is always and only a response 
to the love that he first showed you because God's love initiates. And fourth, we see that God's love is gracious. Jesus came to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, if like me, propitiation is, you know, not a daily word that you throw around or hear around the office, let me define it for us. A propitiation, it is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath, his holy anger against sin, and turns his wrath into favor. So propitiation, it's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it into favor. See, that God loves us does not mean that God is blind to our sin. God doesn't ignore, gloss over, or minimize what's wrong with us or what we have done wrong. Instead, Jesus chose to deal with the sin that condemned and corrupted us by taking the divine punishment, the wrath of God that we deserved for our sins and instead gave us the divine favor that Jesus deserved for his perfectness, his perfection, his righteousness. God's love gives us what we don't deserve, but we desperately need. That's what we call grace. And this grace is good news because we don't have to hide what's wrong with us from God. Not that we could anyways. Instead, we can approach God with our failings. We can approach God with our mistakes. We can approach God with our doubts, our foolish decisions, our wicked choices. And in bringing all of our mess before God, we can experience a love that counts our sin as evil, but that turns the wrath we deserve into favor because God's love is gracious. If you're a Christian today, this is the kind of love with which God loves you. If you believe in Jesus as your savior and you follow him as your Lord, then you are the beloved of God and the intentional life-giving, initiating, gracious love of God is yours. Now, I know it doesn't always feel like that's true, does it? It's often hard to believe that in the fullness of what God's love is. But one of the ways that God has given us to remember this, to refocus on the kind of love that God has given us is, is to actually love one another. Now, this seems counterintuitive at first. I mean, imagine that your heart is a cup. It's a cup longing to be filled with love. It seems like John is saying, okay, so my cup feels empty. I don't feel like I have enough love. You're telling me that I need to pour out the precious little bits of what I have left to other people in order to be full. That's what it seems like John is saying. This is what John is trying to tell us. If you believe in Jesus, if you're a Christian, your cup is filled to the brim with God's love. We cannot always see that. We cannot always feel that. We often don't believe that. We doubt that. We wonder about it. But that is reality, that you are the beloved of God. When God looks at you, he is beaming because you're his son or his daughter. You're his beloved. You are cherished by him. And that the action of pouring out the love which God has lavished on you onto other people, it reminds you of the kind of love that he has for you. And it even creates more space for you to experience God's love. 
And we're going to dig into how exactly that works in this second part of our big ideas. We explore how loving one another realizes God's love. How is it that pouring out love to others matures and grows and develops God's love in us? We're going to pick our passage back up in verse 11, which says this, Beloved, that's you, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, in this verse, we're hearing John riff on Jesus. In John 13, we see that at dinner on the night before he was betrayed and handed over to be crucified, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Jesus took on the lowliest, the dirtiest job of a household servant at that time, and he humbly cleaned dirty feet. He cleaned feet that he had created. And after doing this, Jesus said to his disciples, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus and John are telling us that we ought to love one another just as Jesus has loved us. They're not saying that it's an option, that it's a could or even a should. It's more than that. They're telling us that we owe each other the love that God has given us. We ought to love one another. We owe each other love. Because by receiving Jesus's love, we've also received Jesus's way of being in the world. We've received a calling, an obligation, a necessity to love others the way God has loved us. And so who has God called you to love? I actually don't mean this as a rhetorical question. I want you to, in your mind or on paper, on your phone, begin to think about that. Who has God called you to love? Your parents? Your family? Your close friends? Your spouse? Your kids? Your church family? Your neighbors? Your coworkers? What are the names running through your head of the people whom God has called you to love? Now, I want you to narrow down that list a little bit because it's pretty extensive of who God has called you to love. I want you to identify the people that you are struggling to love right now? Who is it hard to love? It's the, the name that's like the last on the list because you don't want to actually deal with it and come to it. Who is it hard to love right now in this season? If you have that person in mind, I'd love for you to make eye contact with me. Who is it hard for you to love right now? In light of what we have learned about God's love, I want to ask you some questions about the love you have for the people that you're struggling to love right now. God's love for you is intentional. How can your love be intentional? What can you do or say to specifically meet that someone's felt need? How can you step into the gap that they're experiencing with purpose and help? How can your love for the person you don't want to love be intentional? God's love for you, it brings life. How can your love bring life? 
Now, you aren't the Holy Spirit, and you can't do the Holy Spirit's work in someone else's life. But what can you do to bring blessing with your words, blessing with your actions? What can you do to support and celebrate what God is doing in that person's life? How can your love bring them life? God's love for you, it initiates. He takes the first step. How can your love initiate? What can you do to take the first step this week? Not waiting for them to call or for them to apologize or for them to make things right and fix it. How can you choose to love that person before they've done anything to merit your love, anything to earn your affection? How can your love initiate? God's love for you is gracious. How can your love be gracious? You can't erase anyone's guilt before God, and you shouldn't excuse or minimize someone's sin against you. But what can you do to extend the grace and forgiveness that has been extended to you by God for your sins? How can you give that someone what they don't deserve, but they desperately need? How can your love be gracious? And that sounds difficult, right? It is. That's hard work. That's painful work. But if we choose into this, if we would choose to love one another with the love that we have been given by God, the Holy Spirit will do something incredible in us. As we sacrifice to love those that we don't want to love. The Holy Spirit tills the soil of our hearts. He tears out bitterness. He tears out unforgiveness. He rips out selfishness and pride, and he clears room for the pleasant plantings of God's love to grow and flourish in our hearts so that we might better understand and appreciate and experience ourselves the love that God has for us. The very action of choosing to love one another is part of how God's love is realized in us. The very action of pouring ourselves out is part of how God fills us. It's how God's love becomes more fully known, more really present in us. And when we choose to love others with God's love, it's not just us who benefits. It's others. It's our community. It's our neighbors. Choosing to love one another simultaneously enriches our experience of God's love. And it tangibly extends God's love to others through word and deed. Now, the final verses of this passage, I think they they give us a glimpse of, of what choosing to do this will bring us to. That if we make the hard choice to love one another with the kind of love God has given us, where where will that lead us? Where will that bring us? John writes this in verses 17 through 18. By this is love perfected with us. And that, that little statement is everything we've just talked about. This is how God's love is perfected in us as we choose to love one another. So that, this is where it's bringing us, we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John is reminding us that when we love one another, 
We seek the common good with uncommon purpose. Our choice to extend God's love is, is not about merely making the world a better place. We extend God's love to others because we are citizens of heaven. We live, we love as a people who are waiting for Jesus to come back. We're waiting for our King to return. We pour ourselves out in love, confident that we can freely generously and sacrificially love others today because later Jesus is going to pour out his love on us to the full that we can't outgive God. We can't outlove God. He will meet all of our needs. And as Christians, we, we fear God in the sense that we worship him with, with reverence and, and honor and respect. We recognize that he is creator and king and we are not But when we think about Jesus coming back, that's not something we're supposed to be scared of. That's something we look forward to because Jesus's return holds our highest good. It holds our greatest joy. Jesus's return and his coming kingdom. That's what we're practicing for as we choose to love one another. We're living out the culture of the kingdom of heaven now, today, on this earth, in this city, in our communities. And at the conclusion of this passage, I think John drives home, I mean, these 14 verses with one simple statement. He gives this as a mark of real Christianity in verses 20 through 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let me say this simply. You can't love God and hate your neighbor. You can't love God and hate your neighbor. We can find a million excuses, some of them seemingly quite valid to belittle, look down on, dehumanize, and dishonor other people, but God won't stand for it. Our polarized political system tells us that if someone supports the party we hate, then it's okay to hate that person too. Our pursuit of success and comfort tells us that anyone who gets in the way of our idolatry, a.k.a. our self-centered pursuit of personal happiness, that person who gets in the way doesn't matter and isn't worth our time. Our social and social media echo chambers tell us that if someone disagrees with us or thinks differently than us, they're not just wrong, but they're evil and therefore no longer worthy of being treated with dignity or honor or respect. God tells us, That if anyone says, I love God and hates their brother, that person is a liar. There are Christians who support the political party you can't stand. There are followers of Jesus who regularly function like a thorn in your flesh. There are believers who disagree with you on a whole host of issues. But hear me, Jesus loved those people enough to die for them. 
He loved those people, the people on the bottom of your list, or the ones you don't even want to put on your list of people to love. He loved them enough to give up his life for them. That's what Jesus thinks about them. He thinks of them as his beloved. And when we would do the same to those who don't follow Jesus, that is not any better When we dishonor, dehumanize, belittle, hate, do not love others, we are dishonoring and devaluing God who has put his image in every single human being. However brokenly, however imperfectly they live out his image, every human is an image bearer of God. God calls us to love one another. And our love for God, it must include loving our neighbor because you can't love God and hate your neighbor. Now, I have no plans to be the owner one day of an NFT. That's not like on my bucket list of things to do. But I am fascinated by those who own them because much like fine art, the value of an NFT is set by whatever people are willing to pay for them. Its worth is is not something that you can find written down in a book. It's something that is determined by whatever someone wants to pay for, whatever they think it's worth. God chose to pay an infinitely high price to save us. He took on flesh. He was humiliated. He was humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross so that we might be the beloved of God. The costliness of the love that God poured out to rescue and redeem us from our sin through Jesus' death on the cross is staggering. And when we're not sure if our faith is for real, when we struggle to believe in, to rely on the love of God, the good news for us is that God's love, it runs deeper It goes farther and it is stronger than our doubts. It is stronger than our fears. God's love for us, it's not a commodity for us to consume. It is a transformative reality to grow in us, to change us from the inside out and to bring blessing to others, even as we have been blessed. And if you want to grow in God's love, if you want to experience more the transformative reality of God's love, then your next step, John would tell you, is to love one another with the love you've been given in Jesus because loving one another realizes God's love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need you. Uh, you call us to, you call us to a way of being that is more than we have to give. Um, that is beyond us, God. I ask through your Holy Spirit that you would enable us to love each other, to love those that we struggle to love. God, where our own hearts feel broken and hurt and confused, God, would you pour out your love on us? Would you heal us with your love? And as healed, broken people, would you help us to be part of the healing process for other broken people too? We need you and we have you. I thank you for that because of Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen.